Sachin. Woo, Sachin just delivered a blow, my word. Oh, wow, wow. That was, that was, that was quite the thing right there. But, uh, but I will say this, from just being up here, you guys were chatty. That was so fun to see. I, I'm so excited. This is week six, uh, so we're past the halfway point now of Summer of Connection. And I have so many little stories that, that I've just encountered the last few weeks, both here on Sundays, park parties. I was at uh, uh, a block party at uh, Overlakers neighborhood just yesterday that was just so awesome to see all the neighbors coming out. So, so I just want to give you a big old kudos for really leaning in to the Summer of Connection and uh, really kind of going after this together. Uh, well, we are again in week six as we walk through the life of David, a story about a young boy who is anointed, maybe as a preteen teenager, uh, uh, by a prophet named Samuel. And then he defeats a giant Philistine, Goliath. We've all heard that story before. Gets super popular, super, super, super popular. ESPN top 10 all the time. Uh, and then King Saul, the current king at the time, gets really jealous, tries to kill him a few times. Uh, uh, so David, being wise and smart, goes on the run. He's kind of fleeing, hiding out with some of his friends. And he just waits on the Lord's perfect timing. We were kind of talking about this just last week, if you're with us, uh, for the Lord to promote him over time until at age 30, he becomes king. And so we are picking up where we left off just last week. Here we have a young king, and he now has some big decisions to make. And we're going to look at one of those this morning. But I want to start with a question and raise your hand if this pertains to you. Please raise your hand. Uh, how many of you have a keepsake box, have a keepsake box. Or maybe a better question is how many of you have a mother who has procured a keepsake box for you growing up? Yeah, there we go, there's all the hands. Uh, same here, same here. My mom, we got a little tote back in Spokane, our little storage space, and, and there's like a little green cast from a broken arm that I had in fifth grade that's tucked away in there. Uh, we have a little, my little favorite stuffed animal, uh, a, little, a little blankie from, from, from being a little baby, uh, little, little elementary school projects that were kind of cute, things I wanted to be when I grew up. Uh, uh, just all these fun little things, mementos, little, little stories that would kind of string together my childhood. Uh, and, and I bring this up because we're actually going to look at something that in many ways was kind of like a keepsake box. It was actually way more than a keepsake box, but the Ark. We're going to be talking about the Ark today, the Ark of the Covenant. And if you're like me, I was always curious what's inside that thing, that super special spiritual uh, thing that the Israelites had. And so we are going to go ahead and discover what's inside that keepsake box uh, in Hebrews 9 verse 4. And so here we find out. Again, David's going to make a big decision regarding this soon, but we want to find out what's inside this thing. It says, Inside the ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that had sprouted leaves. Sounds like an interesting story right there. And, and the stone tablets of the covenant. So you have manna, a reminder, this heavenly bread that the Lord provided for the Israelites as they're kind of wandering about in the wilderness. Uh, uh, something that reminded them of the Lord's provision. You have Aaron's staff a reminder of the many miracles that God had done for his people. Uh, you have the stone tablets, the, the, the laws that these people were to live by, to be set apart so that they could be a blessing to all peoples. And so that's what's inside this ark. And David is just now coming off of a victory against the Philistines. And, and as usual, he wins victorious. He's always, he's always winning. Uh, and so he now decides 
there is something that mustn't wait any longer. It's time to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to the epicenter, to, to, to the nation's capital, to Jerusalem, to the city of David, the city of peace, God's city. And it had been out in some kind of obscure little village about eight miles away. It'd be similar, uh, the way I kind of liken it is if the Declaration of Independence was in Renton, that ain't going to work. Time to get it to D.C., right? Uh, the, the centerpiece of leadership, of military, of finance, of justice. And, and that's what David wants to do is ensure that this, this very presence of God is now at the center of the nation, not on the periphery. And so we'll pick up the story right here as David prepares to move this ark. And so if you want to follow along, it'll be in the notes and on the screen. We're in the sixth chapter of 2 Samuel. It says, Then David again gathered all the elite troops in Israel, 30,000 in all. So not some small commission that he sends to go retrieve this thing, but he grabs the finest, 30,000 marines to go out to retrieve the Ark of the Covenant. He led them to Bala of Judah to bring back the Ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord of Heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. Bala of Judah, by the way, is about eight miles away, so it'd be roughly uh, just shy if you were to try to walk from here to downtown Bellevue. It'd be a little shy of that, uh, but that's about the distance, uh, how far away it is. And it says, they placed the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart that carried the Ark of God. Ahio walked in front of the Ark. Uh, interesting little piece in there. It says they built a cart, a new cart to put the Ark on. This, if you did some of the re summer reading, we're kind of going through First and Second Samuel, you'll remember the Philistines, they actually were able to steal the Ark at one point briefly. And the way their mode of transportation was on a cart. That's how they got this thing around. If you're a total Old Testament junkie, then, then you probably have some, some crazy uh, verse memorized that says that the ark's to be moved by four priests on, the, on two long poles that kind of run through the base of the ark. So David's not really moving this thing the way that, that it had been uh, commanded. And so let's continue. It says in verse 5, David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. So it's a party, 30,000 people marching, singing, dancing, beautiful music filling the air as this ark is now moving a little closer. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled and Uzzah reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah and God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there beside the ark of God. So you have a stumbling oxen that just ruins the mood. <laughs> Bad dad joke. Bad, I had to. Guys, I, I just I had to. I had to. I just stepped right into that one. But, but seriously, think of the change just on a dime. How quickly a little stumbling all of a sudden just changes everything. The DJ quits spinning the ones and twos. People quit dancing. Music's done. Someone reaches down to take Uzzah's pulse. Not there. Declared dead. Game over. Game over. Well, let's, let's finish up here in verse 8 now. David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah. He named that place Perez Uzzah, which means to burst out against Uzzah. And it is still called today, as it is still called today. David was now afraid of the Lord. And he asked, how can I ever bring the ark of the Lord back into my care? 
So David decided not to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. So you have King David undefeated. Every time he takes his troops anywhere, regardless if it's a small contingent or 30,000, he always wins, always comes back victorious. Here's one time he goes out to retrieve a keepsake box, and he goes home in retreat. It's amazing. And David, he's angry. And truthfully, I'll, I'll just totally show my cards right now. Whenever I read the story, I find myself a little mad. I find myself like, come on, Uzzah's doing a solid. The thing's going to drop. Like, he just, he's just going to steady it, to just kind of like prop it up. And in that moment, bam, loses his life. And the best metaphor that I've been able to come up with as I've been like really thinking about this is this. I got, got this right here. Does anyone know what this is? Anyone know what you use this for? Yes, welding. It's a welder's helmet right here. And if you're welding, you know that, one, your eyes can't handle the pure light, right? You will blind. If your retinas, if your retinas were to kind of drink in that much light in any given moment, you'd be blinded. And so it's all dark, dark-tinted kind of glass that you're looking through. And then it's covering up your whole face because you know if those sparks hit you, your skin's not going to handle the heat, it doesn't matter how great of eyesight you have. It doesn't matter how skilled you are. It doesn't matter even your motive for uh, welding a great project. You need one of these. It protects you. Likewise, only pure perfection can come into contact with pure perfection. Only someone who is purely perfect can come into the presence of a perfect God. And so we actually are in need of someone to make us perfect to clothe us in perfection. This is why we're in need of Jesus. And if in your first feeling you want to jot this down, I think it's important that we go kind of deeper into this topic of worship, recognizing that worship, it requires a why. It requires a reason. Whatever it is that you choose to worship in your life, it actually, there's a reason why you do that. And we're not talking about if you'll worship or not. I loved, there was a quote posted on Facebook by Timothy Keller, great pastor, and he wrote this this week. He says, you don't get to decide to worship. Everyone worships something. The only choice you get is what to worship. And I would agree. And so the deeper work is really deciding what is it or who is it that you'll worship, and then knowing the why behind that, knowing the reason behind that. Israel, they knew their why as to worshiping God. They knew it. And that ark actually contained kind of memories, parts of their story that remind them as to why they worshiped the Lord. A God who took them from a humble beginning in the man in Abraham to now a nation delivering a people held in slave for over 400 years in the nation of Egypt to now free People that were wandering for 40 years, now into their own nation, their own land. They had so many reasons why to worship the Lord. And so we must know, why is it that we gather on Sundays to worship Jesus? And what I love is in Hebrews chapter 9, same, same chapter we were in earlier, discovering what's inside the ark, we find these verses, and I love this. kind of gives us some context as to why we worship Jesus. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. 
For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. It's Jesus' sacrifice that's our why. It's his blood that's forgiven us of our sins that gives us our reason to worship. And when we talk worship, we talk about to make a big deal of, to, to elevate, to lift up, to celebrate, to highlight. And that is exactly who we have to lift up here. It's Jesus and the work that he's done for us. And so what I'd like to do, before we even continue any further, I think this is important, that we put things into practice as early as possible as we learn things, as we're kind of uh, 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 met with a, a challenge or a principle or truth. And so what I'd love to do in this moment, would you actually please stand with me? Because what we will do next is we'll actually come forward, and you'll see there's different tables spread throughout the room here. Some at the front, the middle, the back. And on these tables are the elements of communion, little, little pieces of bread, little, little cups of juice. This is something that allows us to be reminded of why we worship Jesus, of what he's done for us, of how he's impacted the stories of each of our own personal lives. And so what I'd like to do is invite you into worship, and as you feel led, come forward to a table, partake of the bread, recognizing that Christ's body was broken for us, and of the cup, recognizing that it's his blood that forgives us of our sins. But let's not move forward until we remember the why of our worship. Let's continue. It's already been done You can't add to his blood It was once for The Father gave his son And forever we are changed By the miracle of grace Throughout history The Father's life remains Praises rise endlessly. We lay our lives before the King who was, who is, His love will always be the hope for
Let's do this. David actually has a few more things to teach us about worship. So if you would, go ahead, take a seat. We're going to discover what those are. But now we have the centerpiece of it all. I think we've spent some good time recognizing the why, the reason to our worship. And then from there, there really are so many different ways and forms and variations as to what worship can look like. And I'm just going to pick three little ones that I've identified in this passage that we're going through. 
Because where we've last left off, the ark is still eight miles away. (laughs) Not so good. Not so good. So David, he actually decides that's not going to be right. So he actually still desires to bring this thing to Jerusalem, again, to the center of the nation. And so the first point, again, if you like to uh, uh, kind of jot in those fill-ins, the little blank lines there, uh, worship teaches us this, that worship is constant. It's constant. It's unending. It's unending. You don't, as you walk with Jesus, and, and those of you in here that have done it for decades now, maybe your entire lives even, you could attest to the fact the longer you walk with Jesus, it's not like, it's not like you become bored all of a sudden as to, uh, man, I wonder what I should worship next. What are my other options? No, you recognize, man, there, it's unending. There's more and more to fall in love with who God is. And that's what I would profess, and that's what I've seen in my own life. But worship is constant. And we see that as we pick up in verse 12 here. So David went there. Again, he goes back to where the ark is. So David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, again, with great celebration. After the men, so it's not on a cart anymore. Uh, he probably did his homework, right? Kind of like, oh, yeah, we were carrying it wrong. Okay, so, so the men, after the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, get this, six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Six steps, pause, act of worship. Six more steps, pause, act of worship. There's a rhythm to this. There's a rhythm to it. And I think there's rhythms that we can create in our own lives. And it's not just rhythm for the sake of routine, because I think that can become very empty. It's rhythm for the sake of allowing things to get to a heart level, to remind us, to bring us to a place of full devotion, of recognizing, again, who God is, and then just lifting him up, celebrating all that he's done. What I love about David, David was like totally a renaissance man, like so many talents, like uh, amazing in the military, had a great kind of mind, master of warfare. Uh, uh, he, was, he was probably great in the garden, I can imagine, for some reason, uh, great at like home renovations, and, and just perfect with writing. Wrote so many different songs and lyrics to things, and we have these uh, in, the, in the book of Psalms. We can see different things that, that David has written. And what I would like to do, I would actually like to read you one. And it's intentionally not in your notes. And it's intentionally not going to be on the screens. Because my request in this moment is, would you just hear these words? Would you just allow these words, these images, David's writings to just kind of fall upon you? Would you just allow images to come to mind? And maybe if closing your eyes is, 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 is troublesome, then, then go ahead and just watch the screens. There'll be some images on the screens that I, get, I think kind of give some context as to David's heart here. But what we'll discover is David had an extreme heart to see God and the creation around him. Perhaps his favorite worship leader of all time was the great outdoors. Makes sense when you know he's a young shepherd spending countless nights under the stars. But his heart, I think, was so resonated with what worship was, or what, what, what uh, the great outdoors was that drew him to worship, the great creator of who God is. So hear these words. Again, allow them to soak in. Oh, my soul, bless God. God, my God, how great you are. Beautifully, gloriously robed, dressed up in sunshine, and all heaven stretched out for your tent. 
You built your palace on the ocean deeps, made a chariot out of clouds, and took off on wind wings. You commandeered winds as messengers, appointed fire and flame as ambassadors. You set earth on a firm foundation so that nothing can shake it ever. You blanketed earth with ocean, covered the mountains with deep waters. Then you roared and the water ran away. Your thunder crash put it to flight. Mountains pushed up, valleys spread out in the places you assigned them. You set boundaries between earth and sea. Never again will the earth be flooded. You started the springs and rivers, sent them flowing among the hills. All the wild animals now drink their fill. Wild donkeys quench their thirst. Along the river banks, the birds build nests. Ravens make their voices heard. You watered the mountains from your heavenly cisterns. Earth is supplied with plenty of water. You make grass grow for the livestock, hay for the animals that plow the ground. Oh yes, God brings grain from the land, wine to make the people of Woodenville happy, their, vo- their faces glowing and healthy, a people well-fed and hardy. God's trees are well-watered, the Lebanon cedars he planted, birds build their nests in those trees. Look, the stork at home in the treetop, mountain gloats climb about the cliffs, badgers burrow among the rocks. The moon keeps track of the seasons. The sun is in charge of each day. When it's dark, the night takes over. All the forest creatures come out. The young lions roar for their prey, clamoring to God about their supper. When the sun comes up, they vanish, lazily stretched out in their dens. Meanwhile, men and women go out to work, busy at their jobs until evening. What a wildly wonderful world, God. You made it all with wisdom at your side. You made earth overflow with your wonderful creations. I don't think, yeah, let's give it up for David. Beautiful. I think there's something we can learn from David of just slowing down and just drinking in all that's around us. And and where we live in the world is incredibly gorgeous. And I think maybe we become too busy and we pass by so many opportunities, again, to take six steps, pause, and worship. I can guarantee you, by probably a few decades, I am the youngest bird watcher down at Juanita Bay. (laughs) A new hobby that I've picked up recently. Uh, In the mornings, Leah, she goes and works out, and I take Sailor, throw him in the stroller, Romeo, our little dog, and we go down to the bay. I bring my binoculars, bring my computer, kind of get a few things done. But I always pause to do some bird watching. And I've gotten so into this. It's, it's maybe a little crazy. Actually, it's gotten so crazy. When I was back home in Spokane a couple weeks ago, I was telling my mom about it, brought my binoculars. Uh, she mailed me an article from the Spokesman Review on Ospreys. So uh, is anyone else have parents that'll mail you like newspaper clippings? Yeah. I love it. I, like, don't tell my mom she could have emailed this to me. Like, just, just don't. It would ruin too many, too many fun things I get in the mail. Oh, and a little bonus one I taped on the back there. Uh, it's pretty funny. Uh, But I think there's some truth of just slowing down. And Lord, forgive us for going so fast. We miss it all. I've lived where I've lived now for seven years. And just now, just this first summer now, this year, I've actually slowed down long enough to actually learn the different bird species that are around me. And and it's amazing how much is going on that, again, I've just cruised on by. Uh, I've gotten to see, just, this is just in the last week or so, a great blue heron, pleated woodpecker, cedar waxwing, an osprey, black-capped chickadee, red-breasted sapsucker, bald eagle, belted kingfisher, and I could go on and on. 
But there are so many opportunities to worship the Lord, and I think we pass on them so often. So let's remember, worship is constant. It's unending, and we always have opportunity for it. Second thing we can learn, worship is costly. Worship is costly. It requires giving something of value. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 13, it says, After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, we, we remember that, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. So that's just from the trek, from the, those eight miles, Obed-Edom to, to Jerusalem. That's what was happening every six steps. Uh, to, to then, uh, when they get there, in verse 17, it says, They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the special tent David had prepared for it. And then there, check it out. And then David sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. So all kinds of offerings are taking place. A lot of oxen and, and uh, young fatted calves are losing their lives that day, sadly. Uh, don't tell PETA. But, uh, but these are things of great value at that day and that time and that cultural expression of what's going on there. He's giving so many things of value. Worship is costing him something. So what are things that we value? I'll pick two. I'll just pick two. Two things that I know that we value here in our culture. One is money. That's your cue to run. The pastor said money. You can totally bounce right now. No, I'm just kidding. It's true. I mean, if we valued uh, trading like sheep and oxen and and doves and stuff, then I'd talk about that. But unless you live in Carnation, it doesn't really pertain to us. Uh, But money, right? And there's a rhythm that comes with that. Perhaps every two weeks you get a paycheck. And there's a decision to be made. What is it that I'll do first with this? Is there an act of worship that you can enter into there? Second thing, time. We value time in our society. We pay for convenience. We pay for things that save us time. And yet again, think of it. If you're going to take an eight-mile trek, simply it takes a lot longer when you're pausing every six steps to worship. Maybe we need to prioritize worship over efficiency and productivity. Maybe we, again, need to slow down, buy a pair of binoculars, come join me down at the bay. I think we just need to, again, enter into this invitation of worship and recognize it is costly. A sacrifice is exactly that. It's a sacrifice. It's something you feel. You notice it. Uh, there, there, there was someone who shared something uh, a couple years back now that, that just kind of resonated with me in that moment. And they were sharing that they had taken this challenge, young in their marriage, of giving a percent more than the year previous, uh, again, to the Lord, kind of to the church, and kind of funding the mission of what was happening through a really dynamic church. And so Lee and I, we, we heard this, and we made a decision. It's like, wow, we could do that, just 1% more than the last, the previous year. And it's just been a little thing that I think has allowed us to, again, take a step forward where maybe comfort would try to uh, kind of hold us back. And perhaps it just means if you've not entered into an act of worship that's sacrificial, you just give 1% more than you did last year. And maybe it's just 1% this year. Maybe that's it. But next year, you'll be twice as generous, 2%. 20 years from now, think of just that sacrifice, that act of worship that you'll be living into. I always love this line, this little quote. It says, the best time to plant an oak tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. You don't need to think, oh, man, I can never get there, though. Just start now. Start now. Take six steps and pause. Take an act of worship right there. So worship is constant. It's costly. Last one. Worship 
is celebratory. Celebratory. Last Sunday, I was sharing how Lee and I were at last week's Sounders game. They came back from three goals down to win it in regulation, four to three. First time ever in MLS history. It was pretty cool. Great game. And we were, we were right next to the Emerald City supporters, the diehards, the people with the flags and like the war paint and, and the chants and the scarves and just the whole bit. And I think there's something in there that I definitely, in reading this and talking about David, how he was dancing and the celebration and the, the ram's horn and all this stuff, I'm like, wow, we could learn something from the Emerald City supporters here. They know how to worship. They know how to do it right. They got the flags out. They're just making noise. They can't, you can't shut them up. Some guy said in the section, I don't know if this is accurate or not, so don't quote me. He said it's been like four and a half years of constant chanting, that they've never given up, that there's not a moment of silence. They get a quick swig of water and they go back into the next song. And what was so fun, again, you can listen to their, they have like worship leaders. They seriously, they have people on podiums facing the crowd and they're giving them the next song and then they're giving them cues of, all right, one more round, then we're going this way, you know, grab your neighbor. And it's like people with their arms over their shoulders, shuffling around. And we wouldn't dare do that here. Oh no, don't touch your neighbor. Keep a few seats, please, right? Guys, I think we can learn something from these fans. Second Samuel, chapter six, verses 14 and 15. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. Wearing a priestly garment. We don't have those, so we'll just have to do the dancing. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horns, dancing and shouting and tooting horns, and it was just awesome. And so again, I, in this moment, am going to ask you to stand with me. That's right. Loosen up. Let's see a few of you. Yeah, kind of getting the knees a little loosened up for your dance moves. Yeah. Guys, we are going to lean into this one again. We can talk about it, or again, we can quickly put it into practice. But I will read one last verse. Here was David's attitude when it came to worship. And here's what I'm going to speak over us as we head into worship in this moment. David said, yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this. So now, if you don't look like a fool in the next minute, I will be running around dancing right next to you, getting you in the mood, all right? So let's, let's go. Let's lead out, dance, shout, move. Let's...